earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today's Part 18 and the conclusion of our series, The Acts of the Resurrection Life. And if you missed any parts, all podcasts are freely available at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Today's title, There's No Place Like Rome, brings us to the final two chapters in Acts, 27 and 28. Here we'll continue our thematic journey through Acts, where we've been tracing the varied manifestations of the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles and disciples of Jesus. But before we unpack these two chapters, I'd like to share a story about a woman who was diagnosed with cancer and whose doctor said she had about three months to live and should start making preparations. So first up was contacting her pastor, who promptly came over to discuss her final wishes. She told him the songs she wanted, the scriptures to be read, what she wanted to wear, and even her favorite Bible she wanted to be buried with. Everything seemed in order, so the pastor got up to leave, when the woman suddenly recalled another important detail. She shouted, "'Wait, pastor, there's one more thing!' "'What's that?' he replied, as he sat back down. She said, "'I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand.' The pastor sat there for a moment, speechless, and didn't know how to respond. "'That shocks you, doesn't it?' the woman said. "'Well, to be honest, I'm puzzled by your request,' he replied. So the woman explained, "'Pastor, in all my years attending church socials or events where food was offered,' And let's be honest, food is an important part of any church function, right? My favorite moment was when those clearing away the dishes from the main course told us, Keep your fork. It was my favorite moment because I knew something better was coming. When I heard, Keep your fork, I knew something great was coming, and it wasn't just jello or pudding. It was cake or pie, dessert with substance. So, Pastor, when people see me in the castic with a fork in my hand, I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? And that'll be your cue to tell them something better is coming, and to keep their fork, too. The pastor's eyes welled up with tears of joy as he hugged the woman goodbye. This was likely one of the last times he'd see her. But he was blessed at her grasp of heaven. She obviously was certain something better was coming. Well, the funeral finally came, and as the woman predicted, people walked by her casket, noticed the fork, and wondered, What's with the fork? And the pastor would smile, and when it came time for his message, he shared the story of the conversation he had with the woman before she died, and included the symbolism of the fork. He even remarked that he couldn't stop thinking about it, and that they'd all likely wouldn't either. And you know what, friends? He was right. 
Well, friends, all I can say is that next time you're at a family meal, eating out with friends, or at a restaurant or special event that includes food, hold up your fork and remind yourselves something better is coming. And if your meal includes a dessert, remember that a dessert is waiting that tops anything this life offers or even throws at you. Heaven is the best dessert ever. Friends, today we conclude our series on Acts. Yes, we're at the end of our selective and thematic journey through Luke's carefully crafted historical record of the early church's evangelistic endeavors. But before we turn to Acts 27 and 28, let's briefly consult some verses back in chapter 1, because the verses I want us to hear will set the stage for the mindset of the first disciples, a mindset that became the motivation for everything that followed after Jesus ascended and everything that's recorded in Acts. And it's a mindset, friends, that we must now recapture, particularly in light of the challenging times we're living in, times where we Christ followers need to reignite our passion for the perishing as 21st century Christ followers. And friends, this will only happen if we're willing to give ourselves unreservedly to God's plan and appropriate the Holy Spirit's power to fulfill that plan God has for each of us. Chapter 1 and the last two chapters are connected by a thread that's actually been running through the entire book. They function like bookends. So here's Acts 1, 3 through 9. After Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, friends, we need to examine this question the disciples asked, because behind their single question is really these two questions. Lord, are you finally going to unshackle Israel from the chains of Roman domination? And, Lord, are you finally going to give national Israel the power to stand on its own two feet? The power to rule, rather than be ruled any longer by a pagan power? Remember now, the minds of these nice Jewish boys were preoccupied by their longed-for future messianic kingdom, where their Messiah would rule and reign, and Israel as a nation would shine as his seat of power. You see, friends, we can't forget or overlook the backstory here. For these expectant Jews, the Messiah would be a political and military deliverer who would restore Israel to its rightful place of national power and prestige. But notice how Jesus answered their question. Jesus didn't really answer their question, did he? 
Recall he began with, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set. And then adds, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And here's the key, friends, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Notice, Jesus shifts their perspective from a national perspective to an individual perspective. And in so doing, he shifts the responsibility from a national responsibility to an individual responsibility. And what is that individual responsibility? It's to be individual witnesses. But in order to accomplish this task, Jesus will provide them with what? Power. But notice, friends, Messiah is not providing power to national Israel to overthrow the Roman political machine. Rather, he's bestowing power on each believing individual Israelite to overthrow and break the power and domination of sin in the lives of individuals. So it's interesting that Jesus' answer in verse 8, You will be my witnesses, was a deliberate echo of Isaiah 43, 10-12. You, Israel, are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And this word, Lord, is God's covenant name, Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Have you pieced together the puzzle yet, friends? Can you guess just what Jesus is doing here in Acts 1, right before he vacates the earth? In literally nanoseconds, Jesus has to make sure these guys get it, get with the plan. He has to readjust their vision. His disciples must see things his way. One thing about Jesus, he leaves an impression. Before Stephen was stoned and martyred, Acts 7 says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 declares, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to which the prize for God has called me, heavenward in Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, in other words, those who have gone on before us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Solomon in Proverbs 4 says, Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. These and others had their vision readjusted. They saw things God's way or Jesus' way. Perhaps some of you remember the original sci-fi series Outer Limits with its intro, There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are in control of the horizontal. We are in control of the vertical. 
So, friends, who's in control of the horizontal and vertical in our lives? Who's adjusting our picture of the world? While we've been tracing the occurrences and manifestations of power throughout Acts, we mustn't forget or overlook a thread that the Holy Spirit has been weaving alongside all of these occurrences. And that thread is the power of vision. And Jesus imparted this vision to his disciples, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they'd become his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, interestingly, friends, let's not forget that within the universe of Luke's Jewish readers, the ends of the earth was initially represented by Rome. Recall Acts 19, when Paul was traveling through the Macedonian region, he said, I must also visit Rome. Recall Acts 23 and the opposition Paul faced from the Jewish leaders where the Lord comforted him with these words, Take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Well, friends, this brings us to our final two chapters, 27 and 28. And to do these chapters justice and not interrupt Luke's storyline and vivid details, it'll be helpful if you read them in one sitting. I'm going to highlight some key sections with the hope that I'll maintain the continuity here. You may recall the last time I gave us a teaser, so to speak, of the opening of chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. So the text goes on to inform us that they sailed past a number of cities and docked in Lycia. The centurion found a ship sailing for Italy and put the prisoners on board and they went on. The text also informs us that on this leg of the journey, a storm called a northeaster was with hurricane force caught them. It got so bad they had to take measures to hold the ship together as it was being battered by the storm. They even began throwing the cargo overboard. They all gave up hope of being saved. But Paul had a vision from an angel who told him no one would be lost, only the ship would be destroyed. And that Paul had to stand trial before Caesar. But this ship would run aground on an island. So two weeks battling the weather drove their ship to an island with a sandy beach. But the ship struck a sandbar first and ran aground and broke into pieces by the pounding of the surf. The drama continued as the soldiers aboard intended to kill the prisoners to prevent them from escaping. But the centurion stopped them from carrying out this plan, wanting to spare Paul's life. Some swam to shore while others rowed in on pieces of wood from the broken ship. Everyone reached the shore safely. So now chapter 28 begins. They learned from the inhabitants that the island was called Malta, and these inhabitants were especially kind and welcomed them and built a fire to keep them warm because it was still raining and cold. Paul set out to gather some wood to keep the fire going, and here, friends, is the well-known account of a snake darting out of the wood and latching itself onto Paul's hand. You remember the story, right? Remember what the islanders were saying to each other? 
Beginning at verse 4, we read, When the islanders saw the snake, they said, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly drop dead, but after waiting a while and seeing nothing unusual happen, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Well, friends, Paul continues to be a witness wherever he finds himself, right? The chief official of Malta lived nearby, and his father was sick in bed, suffering from a fever and dysentery. He welcomed Paul into his home and showed generous hospitality for three days. Here Paul went into his father's room, prayed and laid hands on him, and he was healed. Evidently, word spread because others on the island who were sick began coming to Paul and were also cured. Their hospitality extended to furnishing the troop with supplies they needed to sail off and be on their journey. The trek continued for three months as they sailed past a number of port cities, stopping in one for three days and meeting some Christ followers in another, being there for a week. Verse 14 tells us they finally arrived in Rome. Some Christ followers who knew they were coming met them, and Paul was encouraged and thanked God. In Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier guarding him. It seems from verse 30 that Paul was under house arrest in his own rented house, and was permitted to have visitors, as well as teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. This went on for two more years. Now, friends, at first glance, it might appear that Acts ends somewhat anticlimactically. After all, there's no verdict from the Roman court or the emperor. But for Luke, the important part of the story has been told, hasn't it? Paul has reached Rome, in essence, the ends of the earth, and he is then proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke evidently doesn't feel obligated to give us any more details about Paul's two-year stint in Rome because he's not writing a biography of Paul, although Paul is an integral part that fulfills Luke's goal to portray the triumphant advance of the gospel. In fact, friends, Paul stands in a long line of disciples who have grasped the power of vision. (sighs) Remember the visionary scripture passages I shared earlier? Well, I believe that at the heart of Luke's book of Acts is solidifying the fact that the followers of Jesus were absolutely certain and committed to the goal to which God had called them. In the same vein, they were also absolutely committed to the race that was marked out for them. Jesus readjusted their vision so they could see clearly what their mission was all about. It was not about overthrowing an earthly kingdom. It was about inaugurating a spiritual undercover operation. This spiritual undercover operation included being trained and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be Jesus' witnesses wherever the wind of the Spirit blew them, whether in pleasant or unpleasant circumstances, in season or out of season. Their gaze was to be continually fixed on Jesus. He was to be the center of their preaching and teaching, particularly preaching the hope of the resurrection. Friends, these last two chapters of Acts portray a person who has not lost his vision. On the contrary, Paul was empowered by his vision, and his vision, in other words, the goal he was pressing on toward, the race he was running that had been marked out for him, motivated him to never give up. 
As chapter 28 winds down, we see Paul faithfully conveying the messianic message. While under house arrest, he sends for the local Jewish leaders and says to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews there objected, so I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. I didn't intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you. During Paul's discussion, they later tell him, We want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are against this sect. So they made further arrangements for a larger group of people to come and hear Paul. The text continues, Paul witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and the prophets, tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. Well, before some of them left, Paul made his final statement, quoting from Isaiah the prophet about his people's hard-heartedness and their unwillingness to repent and be spiritually healed. Luke concludes his book with this summary. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, it's interesting to note, friends, that during this two-year period, under house arrest, Paul ends up writing Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. To the Philippians, he writes, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. It's also in the Philippian letter he closes with, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And it's during this time Paul had the opportunity to lead a runaway slave to Christ, Onesimus, the central figure in the letter to Philemon. To the Colossian believers, he closes with, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And to the Ephesian believers, he closes with, Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might declare it fearlessly as I should. Shortly before Paul was executed, he wrote this to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Friends, these are the words of a man with vision, a man who has very clear sense of his calling, his mission, his goal, and the race marked out for him. May we too possess the passion that Paul had for the perishing. May we too think strategically during these trying times. We cannot continue to do the same things and expect different results. Can we say we're people with vision? In other words, can we say we're people with a purpose? The Apostle Paul saw the fulfillment of his missionary vision as bringing the gospel to Rome. What might our vision be? Where might God want us to bring the gospel? Certainly a few good questions to answer. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of our program. 
Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback on these programs. A listener recently wrote in regarding part 15, Led astray by the gospel, may we all be more like wet babies, referring to a Mark Twain quote, and welcome change, especially if it helps us bring be closer to God and more receptive to his prompting to bring about change in a hurting world. Well, thanks for those kind words. And remember, friends, podcasts of A Word from the Word are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Share them with family or friends who may be blessed or challenged by these teachings. And keep in mind, friends, that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. If it's blessing you, please join the support team. Your sacrificial support helps keep this program on the air. Write me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.